Hey everybody, this is Eric Frank House from EFP, January 18th, 2018. I'm going to dive into the show today about how to create a new monster for your campaign setting, your system, or whatever it is you're playing right now. I just started a new setting and I have a need for a custom monster. And this custom monster is going to be something we're going to build here on the show, or loosely, and how I go through the process. So here's a breakdown for the show today. We're going to go over the why. Why do you need a monster? Of course, you know, that's something you got to talk to yourself about and figure out why you need one, where to start, what do we do to do that, especially for your specific settings and so on, the mythology of the creature, the tales that are told, and then powers and abilities. Powers and abilities are the biggest thing for a monster. If you don't have those, you don't have a monster. We'll be taking a random call in after that. And then I want to talk about the new season of Critical Role. I mean, they are killing the game with this. All right, everybody, let's dive in. So as I mentioned, I have started a new campaign setting. We're playing 5e. It's the first time for, I think, all my players to really be a part of this. And I decided I need to create a new setting, so I did that. And with a new setting, you need new monsters. And I specifically want one for the area between the two kingdoms that are in constant magical warfare, known as the Flensing Fields. I think these creatures are going to be the reason they're named that. So why do I want one? Well, we've all played D&D since first edition, some of us second. We understand that monsters are a huge part of D&D, and a huge part of the history of playing the game. Dwarfs, elves, orcs, monsters, beholders, dragons. These are all things that we all remember. But I needed something for my setting. And I love the idea of beholders, but if I end up publishing this, I can't call them that because, you know, they got some copyright shit on it. But I can use things like eye tyrants and that kind of concept. And I thought, why not just make my own version of these weird magical creatures and not call them beholders? So I am. And that's kind of how this started. So Seekers of the Eye is what I'm making, and the Seekers of the Eye are an organization of magic warpers and weavers, uh, followers of the Tyrant, and I'm not even going to tell people what the Tyrant is, because honestly, I don't know yet, and if the players don't know, I don't need to know it quite now, just need to know it's known as the Tyrant. So I need a monster that can hunt in the Flensing Fields. The Flensing Fields is a magical battlefield that constantly changes as spells go off and things explode and it's never really the same. So I knew I need something to survive in that harsh environment and I wanted something that was representational of the different schools of magic. So that's my idea of why I needed one. I needed something to fulfill a part of my world that monsters from you know the, the monster manual that's out, the one that's out for 5e, doesn't fulfill. So let's get into where to start. So where to start? Well, I kind of talked about what I wanted, and I knew I wanted them to be magic, but odd. I wanted them to have an eye theme, because I think that kind of oddity and magic flows together really well for what I'm looking for. Something that is twisted and marked numerous times over and over until they finally became their own thing. Big marked in my world is the idea of magic backfiring when you cast it on things of magical creation, which in this world are all monsters, all the way down to halflings. So I had to figure a way to make this work. I wanted them to float to kind of alleviate the problems of traveling and rough terrain that's been blown up time and time again. And it has a creepier vibe to it, and I wanted that kind of feeling for these creatures. On top of that, I wanted them to be slender. 
um, tall, almost alien-like, and I wanted their faces to have eight eyes, and the central one being the school of magic that they are dominant in. This is a theme in my setting, even with the courts, they're all part of a school of magic. I needed something more than just the eyes, though, and I decided they have really long fingers that they rake across the battlefield and drag over bodies, almost like combing uh, for magic through the air and over things that are dead. And when their fingers touch something magical, they start to shift and move really quick, and they undo the magic from either the person, the item, or maybe a spell that is still in in an active state. And they untake that, and they take it, and then they weave it into their own magic. And they weave it into items and other creatures and creations. So this is kind of like where I wanted to start with them. And my guidelines for these, this thought process that I had is I want them to travel in groups. And I don't know if it's going to be groups of eight, but they probably travel in tandem with schools that work well together. So that'll be fun for me to do, kind of like pairing them off, or maybe it is a group of eight, like the big group is a group of eight. So those was my guidelines. My thought process revolved around magic, eyes, spell weaving, and almost alien-like. And these are the things I wanted when I was thinking about how do I make this monster different than other ones out there. So when you're making your monster, you should do the same thing. Think about what fits. Look through the monster manuals that you have for whatever bestiary or alien compendium that you have for the system you're playing. And look over things and go, is there something here that fits that I can reskin? Myself, it was just loosely based on the idea that I love beholders and I don't get to use them in a published material, so I needed my own new iconic creatures for this game and what they can create. And that's kind of how that came for me. So you should do the same thing, collect and look through bestiaries. I have bestiaries from systems I've never played. and It's about reading the way people have done orcs in one setting and done them different in another. Or maybe how dragons are done, or they're unique creatures to their setting, going, damn, that's a great idea. Because all, with all the abilities and things lined up, it's the mythology and the ideas behind them that make monsters original. It's not the fact that they shoot a laser beam from their eyes. It's where they come from. The Medusa turning everyone to stone or their labyrinth is the adventure, not the fact that she can do it, but the fact that she has done it and how it has created something. So let's talk about mythology here. So, mythology. The reason we all love monsters. Every monster needs a story, a tale, or something that the people whisper and talk about. Everyone knows the dragon's a dragon, but they whisper about the lair that they're in. They whisper about the time that these creatures caused war and came up from underground. People whisper about those things, the baby snatchers. You know, that, that's the stuff that people remember. So my monster pulls magic and uses it for themselves. The people talk about it. Uh, I'm thinking my idea is they're known as ciders. I think that's what I'm going to have them called unless somebody gives me a better name. But they are known as creatures that see you and lock eyes with you. And once they've sighted you, you're your next victim. Or you're their next victim. And they will hunt you down until they get a hold of you if you have magic in your body and pull the magic from you. If you're a spellcaster, maybe they take your spellcasting ability away. If you have weapons, maybe they deconstruct them into their own. And you're left with just pieces of what was a masterwork weapon. So I know I want them to do these things. And the mythology is they travel the flensing fields and comb the dead and rake them and take their magic away. So if there's magic that would have kept them alive, like a ring of sustenance as they suffer out there for weeks, 
they take the magic away and you die. Or if you have a spell that's keeping you resistant to fire, they unweave that magic and keep it for themselves. So the tales are going to be a lot of things along the lines of battlefield and warriors and people at the front lines. Speaking of them, I don't think they've been seen in cities yet. And I think that's going to be part of the mythos is if you're in a building, you are safe. If you're in the open, you are not. If they can see you, you are dead. And the idea of them being able to find you and follow you through the magical trails you leave, the, the resonance that's left, is how they're going to hunt you down. So this is the high magic end of the campaign that I want. And I want that to be good and bad. So that's the idea for how I want the mythology to work. But if you're creating a creature, think about the purpose you built that monster for. And make sure that you are tailoring the mythology to that. If you make some six-legged creature that... Uh, sneaks in and out of people's houses and steals their jewelry, make a reason for it. Maybe it works for dragons. Maybe it's the scales of a dragon that grow into these creatures, these little draconic six-legged crawlies that steal from people and bring it back to the horror because the dragon's too young to go out and do it themselves. So every time they shed between age categories, maybe these are the creatures that go out and do the work for them. Maybe those are kobolds in your world. But think of a mythology that you can tie to the creature, because then that allow you to run adventures and stories around them. Again, like I said, powers are great, and it is where the magic happens, but without the story, you have no way to properly use them. They're just a random encounter. So I believe in the mythology and the tale. So get that down. Get that idea of your mythology down for whatever it is you're creating. Call in, too, if you've got a question. I'll help you come up with something for your setting. So let's get into the magic, though. Like I said, powers and abilities. Okay. So I'm going to share my GM trade secret. And these are the ways that I've won Iron GM numerous times. Everyone knows that I don't take notes and don't do things. And that's because I have a catalog in my head of things that I want to do, or I have note cards that are kind of grouped together into a theme or an idea or secrets. And that's my prep. I can sit down with these ideas and craft and weave a tale just from having those. So, powers and abilities, I treat this way too. Everybody knows what an orc is, right? We'll use this as an example. Everyone knows what an orc is. They're ferocious. They're usually a barbarian. Sometimes a shaman if they're smarter. And that's what they do. But for me, I write down that it's an orc. And then I write down this orc has secretly found an old temple. And in so has been bestowed with power. Not a lot of power just enough to make them different than the orcs around them. So I write down ideas of what I want it to be able to do that a normal orc can't do. Maybe uh, it can touch the dead and drain its life force to make it stronger for a day. And that gives it a level variancy. Or maybe it has the ability to grapple really well. And when it holds on to you, uh, it leaves like energy arms behind to hold you in place so it can still beat on you. And this is the god kind of granting an avatar-like state or bonus. So I come up with these ideas. I'll put any numbers to them. I'll put anything to them. Then I have little tables for whatever system I'm running that are the general mechanical bonuses that you should or should not be using. If they're level one, this is you know where they're at. A plus three is fair. But if they are uh, fifth level, plus three is really low. You'll need more people. You can kind of do that math yourself. I have a table chart. Uh, for damage the creature should be able to deal based on it's their normal attack. It's something they can only do once in a while 
ords once a day. And I kind of have a scale there that I just make this little table out. And the reason I do this is every system has that. Every system, hell, most of them have it in their DMG, Keeper's Guide, you know, Game Master's Manual. They always have it. But we don't use it. And I realized that when I was probably about 15, I'm doing too much work. Players are going to do what I don't expect. And when they do that, I wrote all this crap for no reason. So instead, just write yourself some notes on this monster that you're going to write. And the first time I run these ciders, or whatever I end up naming them, I will make sure that when I use a power, it becomes canon. And if I've learned anything from Blades in the Dark and a lot of the indie games is... As a group, you just decide, all right, man, is this what we're doing? Do you like this? Is that is that when we light a torch, uh, does it signify to the land of the dead that we're here? And everyone says, yes, that becomes canon. That is something that just happens. And it becomes a story on what you play around. Maybe you play this setting again later. Now you've got a set of these things. And you can make more canon as you go through. They're better than house rules. Because instead of them being things you try to enforce, they're things that develop. And that's how I think a monster at the table should work. You have your ideas, you put them in place, you take powers that you have in your brain that you want them to be able to do, and then you use them. And then you let the person roll. And if they roll really high, maybe they roll a 20, you go, no, that's pretty high for a save for this level. That'll work. I guess I'll make the save 15. And boom, you write it down. And that's how I create monsters on the fly. It allows me to have this flexibility. Um, and then when I use them next time, I know how they function because I wrote it all down. And I can balance it if I need to. And you can go back and look at your stats and see how it functioned. Did you make it too powerful or too weak? And this allows you to adopt and change and, and adapt your creature to fit the level of your setting and the setting itself. So that's how I handle powers. I come up with really cool ideas I want to be able to do. I put it down, even if it seems grand. Maybe it's something ridiculous, like the orc can shape trees and move them. Well, that's pretty powerful. But maybe it takes him a long time, and that's how I kind of change it as a ritual for him instead of being something simple. So for my ciders, I can take magic and shape them into other spells. When they pull magic from something, that allows them to have a spell slot back and they can cast from their spells. Or if they pull the spell from someone, they can use that spell. If it's a magical item, they can bestow themselves the bonuses for the day. So they're constantly weaving magic back into themselves. So that's my ideas. Hope you guys like the idea from Monsters. And I want to get into a call-in and talk to Random Screed about my last episode, episode 10. Hey, FP. It's Hobbs with Random Screed, brother. Hey, man. As far as uh, everything goes, I kind of like 5e as well. There's aspects of it that I don't, but you're kind of sidestepping those by actually increasing the magic. Because D&D, historically, is a high magic setting anyway. And I'm more of a sword and sorcery guy, so I kind of like less magic, but you're sidestepping that issue by deciding that it's even higher magic, which, you know, maybe that fits into your crazy Numenera stuff. I, I don't know. Regardless, it's good that you enjoy it. Uh, I'm having fun running it myself. Uh, I would say that when you're thinking about ranks within your... Um, shit, they're not called houses. You had a name for them, but I can't think of what it is right now. I would consider Renown, and guess what? It's in the fucking DMG, brother. Thanks, Hobbs, for calling in. We've been going back and forth between our two shows a lot lately. I really enjoyed listening to Random Screed. And thanks for calling in on this. Um, 
The name of my groups are Courts, Courts of Magic. I wanted to feel like they've uh, put a level of law involved with how magic is done. So that's that's what the name was. You're close. You, you had an idea of what I was trying to say. So I am with you. I am a huge sword and sorceries fan. I love low magic, grit, grime, Conan the Barbarian. If something magical is happening, you really think twice. But we've been playing very similar style to that for a long time, and I felt I needed to shake it up. So we were playing my home world, Athantia, which is soul punk Victorian horror. So it was grimy, it was dirty, it was ruthless, and bad shit happened, and you didn't want to deal with magic. I, I would say one in ten people played a spellcaster. It was not common, and all magics were weird. There were things that people frowned upon, because they've learned to combine technology and magic together to keep magic stable. Give it kind of like a housing. So while that was fun, I was like, damn, we haven't played a high magic setting in a long time. And I set up, I'm going to do 5e, and I started going through, and I read over the 5e rules. And I was like, this isn't very this isn't very high magic. This is, this is actually kind of the fucking opposite. Three attunement slots? Over a quarter of the book has to be attuned? And I was like, this is just a balance. This is their way of balancing too many magical items so you don't get the Pathfinder bloat where it's like I have a plus five for everything I fucking do. There's no DC that's too hard anymore. So I had to think about it. And I've decided that I'm adding attunement. I'm going to add one attunement slot. I'm going to add historical attunement where some weapons of history and items of history have extra abilities that unlock as you level. I think it's going to be like three items that can unlock if you keep it with you and you attune it to yourself. And then uh, since magic is so high and you can get marked for spells being cast and reflected back, I'm going to have phylacteries be the idea of housing that magic that bounces back and not marking you so you don't get transformed into whatever it is you might get transformed into. If you're fighting a dragon or a beholder or a zorn, that doesn't happen. So that's my ideas on how I'm going to handle that. But yeah, dude, for sure. And the idea of Renown, I have not read through the entire DMG. That's actually what I'm in the middle of doing. I'll be honest, I usually don't read Game Mastery Guides and DMGs because I usually know them or they suck. Like, they're just not, there's just nothing good in them. But if there's a Renown system in it, I'll probably take that, alter it, and then use it for myself. Um, but thanks for the heads up, dude. Thanks for calling into the show. Been listening to yours every day when I get up and do my stuff when you have an out. Keep on doing it. And then for everybody else, I, I got to say, listen to his podcast. Hobbs and Friends of the OSR is amazing. Um, and his random, as I like to call them, rage diatribes during the day are fantastic that you can find here on Anchor. So tonight I am going to be watching the second episode of the second season of Critical Role. I did not watch all the first season and I had a hard time getting into it. Um, I don't know if it was the quality or what it was or... You know, we're all stepping into them already playing it for some time, but something to me didn't feel like starting a TV series, and I had a hard time getting in. And to dedicate the time, because it's four hours long, that far into the series, that's that's a lot of work. That's more than binge-watching, man. Like, that's four episodes of a TV show. That's a lot. So I never got into it. And I watched key episodes people told me to watch, and I did enjoy it. I thought it was fun. Um, I like when they stay in character more and as voice actors and really kind of own their character and bring it to the forefront instead of being slapsticky. And what I noticed this first season is they did that. They're constantly in character. I mean, they do fall out. You have to do out-of-character stuff, but they are their characters. And even if I'm not a fan of that character yet, 
I do like that they are keeping that role in mind as actors and staying with them. Matt Mercer has stepped up his game, um, and the story that he is weaving right now is is pretty pretty damn amazing. I'm excited to watch it tonight with some of my friends. We're going to jump on Discord, shoot the shit, watch the show. And uh, it's nice to be able to start at the beginning, like they're killing the game. And that trailer takes us all back to gaming as kids. Even The best part is there are a bunch of adults sitting around just like children playing it. Fucked up, but great. Really, really entertaining. So I'm excited for Critical Role, and I, and I think they've done an amazing thing for our community and showing that anyone can game and the things you can do with it, and it can actually be a job. Awesome. Awesome, awesome job. Also, they just hired their next designer for Wizards of the Coast. Uh, she's a player on, I want to say it's Penny Arcade. She plays Rose. Super excited to see what she brings to the table. I don't know her as a designer, so that should be entertaining as well. Now, with that said, I'm obviously here. I, I'm a designer as well. I do cartography. If you haven't seen my Patreon, EFP, that is ramping up really hard this year, I think I'm going to be putting the campaign setting out that I'm doing on there for you guys to kind of play test and enjoy. And once I get it to a production piece that I like, um, I'll probably put it out as, a, as one of the charges for the month. I'm probably going to be changing my Patreon around. I've enjoyed doing the plotted adventures. It's gotten some draw, but I think instead of just doing that and pigeonholing myself, I'm going to go back to the idea of me just doing design and putting new things out for people to have every month. But that also means that I'm going to be doing the plotted adventure still as part of that. Because I really enjoy the idea of, of audio guiding a GM to run their session. But I want to be able to give some stuff to the players as well. So we're going to be seeing a little change up here in the next couple of weeks. Um, if you haven't noticed, I've been doing stuff for an upcoming Kickstarter next month. Posted up one of the first logo designs for it for one of the organizations within the game. So follow me on EFP, Eric Frankhouse Presents on Patreon. If you want to back and be part of one of the, one of the patrons, one of the audience, that'd be fantastic. I love talking to people. And if you don't want to do that, you can always follow me on social media. It's Eric Frankhouse on any of your social medias. That's right. I got smart and did that shit early. So that's it for me today, guys. I'm going to get ready for Critical Role, work on a few things for the night. This will be out as a podcast within the next hour. If you're on Anchor, though, remember to call in like Hobbs is and like Sean Kelly has. Be a part of the show and let's talk. If you need a monster created, if you have a question on how to GM, if you're having a hard time as a player, I'm your guy. Three-time Iron GM, here to give you a hand. All right, everybody, go grab a beer, roll some dice, and let's enjoy Critical Role tonight.